You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with Shawinigan Ungaya, a.k.a. Guillaume Gautherot, founder and director of the Sanctuary Healing Center in the Catskill Mountains, where he offers various forms of healing modalities, including shamanic, energy, and sound healing, plus plant and herb therapies, as well as an awakened leadership course. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called The Lute in Dance and Dream, Masterpieces for Lute from the 16th to the 18th centuries, performed by Lutz Kirchhoff on Renaissance and Baroque lutes. This piece is a fantasia by Francesco Canova di Milano. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with Shawinigan Ungaya, a.k.a. Guillaume Gatherot, shamanic healer and founder of the Sanctuary Healing Center in the Catskill Mountains of New York. After a career that scaled the heights of corporate success as a CEO of global companies, Guillaume reached a turning point in his life. 
Material success and trappings had not necessarily made him really happy or fulfilled. He had the big degree, big job, and success that most people aspire for, but he was not happy. Guillaume decided to completely change his life and embarked on a journey of self-exploration and meditation that took him from working with Mother Teresa's mission in India to the jungles of Peru in search of finding meaning in life and fulfillment beyond the material demands of society today. Through seeking to transform his own life to live with a higher purpose, Guillaume made a life-changing commitment to helping others in their search for peace, harmony, and happiness. During his last 10 years of transformative journeys across Asia and South America, Guillaume had rare opportunities to study and meditate with master healers and teachers of all faiths. He is trained in shamanism, plant medicine, medical Reiki, Sufi healing, sound healing, meditation, and herbalism. In 2015, Guillaume opened the Sanctuary Healing Center on his property in the Catskills, where he does in-depth work with clients, hosts workshops, and cultivates the land for organic vegetable farming, plant medicine, and honeybees. Born and educated in France, Guillaume also holds a Ph.D. in veterinary science and surgery from Bissonneau-Fort, France. Guillaume resides at the Sanctuary in the Catskills and travels to New York City and all over the world for his work. Shawinigan Ungaya, Guillaume Gathero, welcome to the Mystical Positivist. Thank you. <laughs> well, great to have you on, and uh, we will begin by with uh, the question we always give to or ask of guests uh, in our first conversation with them, and that is to invite you to cast your memory back to uh, childhood and youth, and. Um, Tell us about any experiences that uh, pop into your head that you would be able to say were were harbingers or precursors or uh, uh, pointed to the direction that your work has taken, in your case, in the last uh, ten, 10 or more years. Yeah, it's, it's always uh, always interesting to, to look back. I was, you know, thinking about it, and uh, I think the, the main thing, you know, that keeps coming up is that connection to nature for me that was always very strong when I was little. Hmm. Uh, my parents always found me, you know, they say uh, always my eyes either on the ground or up in the sky. So I was <laughs> never really looking straight in front of me. So I was always looking at insects or marks of animals on, you know, in the forest or looking at the stars and what's beyond and the mystery of it. Where, where in and, France? Uh, uh, where in France were you able to look at the stars, as opposed to? I was uh, living two hours north of Paris, ah. so in a small in a small town. And my parents, yeah, well, we would live on the edge of the town, basically on the forest, on the edge of it. So oh, I see. we always, you know, spend a lot of time there. Wonderful. Well, so um, uh, you obviously, at least from the biography that Stuart just read. Um, you clearly, um, after that initial interest in nature, you uh, you got involved in the material world and uh, the business world. Um, um, how did how did that just briefly? How did that happen? And and then how did you uh, decide to exit that? Well, I went to a veterinary school when I get my my degree, my PhD, and um, in fact, right. Uh, at the end of the studies, which was, you know, around seven seven years, um, I decided somehow I felt like I didn't want to be uh, opening a, a clinic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I specialize in working with farm animals as a surgeon at the time. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, I think I want to live in different place in my life. And if I open a clinic, I'm going to live in one place. And also I felt there was something else calling me. And uh, I started my first company when I was at school as a student. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, 20 or 30 people working in it uh, by the end of my study. Wow. And uh, the CEO of a pet food company came to see me. I think it was a week before the end of, of my uh, my whole uh, study. And he said, hey, Guillaume, why don't you come and join us? Why don't you come work for us? Hmm. Uh, I think that would be great. And I didn't really think too much about it. And I just went to work in the corporate sector literally a week after I left uh, the school. Hmm. And all my friends were, you know, going to work at other clinics and opening clinics. And me, I went, you know, on that on that work uh, directly into the corporate sector. So I kind of made the shift, you know, pretty pretty quickly without too much questioning, I would think. But you were still using your uh, your veterinary uh, knowledge, I assume. Yeah, in some ways, because, you know, I was basically in charge of uh, a big sectors for that company in the north of France. And I was my clients were vets. So I, I would be dealing with them for, you know, commercial matters and marketing matters. I would visit uh, veterinary clinics uh, three or four days a week. So I would still be in that environment. Definitely, but it was more commercial and marketing jobs that, you know, I mean, it was about nutrition too because I was, you know, working with quite high-end pet food, but it was not directly related to most of the things I learned at school for sure. Mm. So, so how did um, how did you find that experience, and and what was the growing pressure that uh, arose within you to find something that uh, ultimately was more meaningful for you? Well, I didn't question it at the time. I really loved it, to be honest, you mm-hmm. know, because my friend that was out of school was struggling and they had to do an you know, overnight shift and weekend works. And, you know, they were working for the clinics, not getting very well paid. And, you know, I was having a salary. I was having a car and the company was taking care of me. And so for many years, uh, I stayed in the corporate sectors because I became quite good at what I was doing. You know, I went to for different companies. I worked for Nestle, and then I went to work in the luxury industry. And it's really after 10 years uh, working in the luxury industry uh, that I started to realize that I was not really happy. I was, I was really good at what I was doing. I was successful. I was making money. But my life was not fulfilling somehow. There was mm-hmm. something else calling me. And I could not really put a finger on what was wrong because I did everything I was told to do, you know, the big school and getting a nice job and yeah, and making money and buying a house and just doing all those things. But I had all of that. And somehow it was, for me, it was like, no, that's not it. I don't know what it is, but this is not going to fulfill me. So that's when the questioning started. Um, And then I opened my own business, you know, so I went on an entrepreneur path. We're also here in the U.S., in New York, where I was living at the time, and uh, became also the same thing. You know, my company became really big with, you know, close to 200 employees and uh, within a few years. And that's when the pressure, I think, the distortion between the outer world, my successful outer world, and my, what I call premier depression or the unhappiness of my inner world was 
so apart from each other. It was like this massive stretch. There was such a difference between who I was playing during the day and what I was feeling inside. Mm-hmm. And that's really when I decided to really quit everything and go on a, on a big different journey. Got it. Um, before we get into that different journey, I, I just want to um, ask if when you were growing up in, uh, north of Paris, did did you have any kind of interaction with relig- any religious or spiritual um, traditions at all in, in your growing up? I mean, you mentioned the your fascination with and connection with nature as a child. But, um, yes. But go ahead. But my, my, my family was atheist, so I was not raised. I mean, you know, France is a you know Christian country. Most people are Christians mm-hmm. over there. But my parents were not. And, you know, I never went to church or things like that. Mm-hmm. But I was always attracted to religion. Very young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother remember that I was maybe six or seven years old. And, you know, in France, we have all those beautiful old monasteries and yes. abai and churches. My parents would love for us to go visit those old places. Mm-hmm. And I always felt very connected there. She told me one day that we were in that uh, monastery, that, you know, that was not in activity anymore, but I would walk uh, inside around where the monks were walking. I didn't know that, but I was doing that round circles all around mm-hmm. a certain spot in the garden. And the person that was making the visit told us, oh, that he's doing like the monk used to do. And mm-hmm. I think I was five at the time. Uh, I don't remember it, but I clearly remember that connection that was really strong my whole childhood and, you know, never left me. You know, it has just been growing my whole life. Got it. Um, so then, um, returning to the point in the story I, I diverted you from for a moment when you'd, you'd reached this disconnect between the aspiration that you had and uh, uh-huh. that I assume was, was not yet narrowed down. But um, yeah, not at all. <laughs> but, but what you but what you were what you were um, actually doing, you know, successfully in the world. So how how did you how did you negotiate not knowing what direction mm. to turn to to fulfill your aspirations? Well, in short, I would say it was really an act of faith. You know, that's really what it was when I look back now. Uh, but. Uh, there was clearly not a comfortable place to be for me at the time because I was definitely not comfortable with not knowing, you know, <laughs> having a scientific background and, uh-huh. uh, you know, being raised, you know, yeah, a certain way where you need to know everything and figure out things before you take decisions. And and uh, that, that was creating my whole suffering because, obviously, I could not see what was next. Uh, but in parallel to that, at the same time, my suffering was growing. And mm. at some point, it becomes so intense. And I was on the spiritual path, meaning that you know, I had teachers, I, I was starting to learn meditations, and I was going to retreat. So that was going on in the background and mm-hmm. increasing that suffering in some way, but also increasing my capacity to hold more space mm. for that suffering and for uh, a way to look at it, to see what is going on there. What kind of traditions and, were you uh, uh, exploring at that time? Say that again, sorry. Well, what kind of traditions were you exploring at that time? Uh, I was working with a teacher in New York, which was uh, an Advaita Vedanta teacher, so Indian scriptures, mm-hmm. uh, traditional Indian scriptures, uh, and with uh, someone that was in the lines of uh, Chogyam Trungpa, 
Ah, okay. a crazy wisdom. Mm-hmm. So very two very different lineages, but in some ways, you know, I really loved it. I love the the difference between the two of it. <laughs> yeah. Got it. So, um, so you were doing that though. I mean, we're still in the period, um, or, or you were still you were beginning to do that towards the end of the period of your uh, engagement with the business world in the way that you described, right? Yes, and I started to uh, work with plant medicine. I started oh. to go uh, work with shamans um, in Peru, and it was, you know, I would say probably four or five years before I left everything. Mm-hmm. So I already had a start to a feeling and experience uh, of what, what this world is about. Hmm. And that's what basically grew in the background the most. And that's what really became what, I, what I'm the most connected to today, but still very connected to all the different religions also. So, so I'm interested about that uh, transition in you know, uh, working in, I, I presume you were in New York City when you're doing, when, uh, at this point doing your mm-hmm. corporate work. and. Yes being exposed to uh plant medicine is an interesting difference i mean uh from the uh, uh, uh trumpa tradition or the the shambhala tradition and the um and the advaita vedanta i'm interested yeah. how, how did you how did you get connected with that and 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 what kind of uh resources did you find available in terms of either teachers or uh places to mm-hmm. go I mean, it's true that it's the, the tools are very different, but I would say the aim, uh, which is liberation from suffering, which is an opening to um, higher level of consciousness or different level of consciousness, um, are the same. You know, there's, there's still this aim of liberation of the human condition in some ways. So, and I could see that already at the time. I remember that I was like, oh all those are saying the same thing they're just using different words and different tools mm-hmm. uh, so a friend of mine at the time I had experience with plant medicine and mentioned it to me I've really never heard about it before and he said oh there is that person that's coming and that does this work would you like to meet him and I you know I went on this ceremony and you know I was so moved by it it was so it was difficult it was very intense but it was also so beautiful and I felt, you know, for a moment, there was a moment in it, like sometimes you have that experience in meditation or all the spiritual work, but almost touching at a, a glimpse of the universe, a glimpse of that totality, that love that's behind everything. And that was such a profound experience that it was, it became kind of my rope mm-hmm. to the dark nights, to the suffering, you know, to the unknowing, like you mentioned, you know, and, and going through it, say, well, um, I might not um, understand things very quickly. I might not find my path very quickly, but there's so much to discover there. There's something really beautiful. I could feel that, and I want to pursue that. Something was telling me, just go for it. Just trust it. Well, it's, it's interesting. You just mentioned, you know, compared this to, uh, some. you said, sometimes in meditation. So I'm wondering if at that time you already had had a, a fairly... Um, deep or sophisticated meditation practice when when you um, found yourself so touched personally in this other yes, tradition? Yes, I did. My, my, uh, I was already probably four, 
after three or four years already as a, as a you know deep doing meditation i was starting to teach meditation in new york uh, hmm. which and, uh, uh, the the uh, uh, a tibetan form or uh, uh, um hindu. hindu tradition okay. modern hindu yeah hindu tradition and uh, i already had experience of the experience of kind of this this being completely dissolved you know that experience of expansion that experience of love mm-hmm. in some of my meditation practice and I knew, you know, I didn't have to hold to that. It was not, it was not that I was aiming for that. Mm-hmm. But coming back from it and seeing how I was the days after, the weeks after those experiences, and see how my language was changing, how my behavior was changing, my relation with my emotion was changing, I was like, wow, I'm, I feel so much better than the other way of being. And mm. so that that I knew there was something else. You know, I could not tell what it was, and I really didn't know. I mean, if you tell me that I would be doing what I'm doing today, if you told me that 10 years ago, I would have probably laughed. <laughs> it's crazy. Sorry. But, uh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm intrigued by, 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 you say, your language changed. I mean, um, clearly you're not talking about French to English. <laughs> your English is really good. <laughs> Thank you. So, so um, I, um, uh, but can you ex- expand on that um, uh, by telling us what you know how how you experienced the way you spoke? I assume that's what you mean. Um, how that yes. how that yeah. um, shifted for you? Well, I remember clearly there was a moment in my life where I could see that my most of my words my language was coming down from my head into my throat and that's what I was talking, mm, that's I what see. I was saying. I okay. And then one day something dropped. And like my face, you know, I thought my face and my belief was very in my head. It was probably in my heart too already, but it was very heady. Mm-hmm. But it dropped in my heart. It dropped down, you know, it dropped down into my chest. I remember like the physicality of it, the feeling mm. that some of my words, like if I could get focused, if I would just drop in, and I would speak from that place, it would be a voice that comes more from my my abdomen, my heart, and the way up through my throat. Mm-hmm. There was this clear moment seeing the difference in terms of tone and the difference in terms of wisdom, I would say, you know, and the validation needed, like when I was talking as a, you know, as a CEO or as a business person, there was always this need for validation. There was something about to prove someone about me being right and saying that or doing this. Mm-hmm. Then it was something that was much deeper about my own experience, what I felt. You know, it was more about emotion, feelings, than thinking. Hmm. That's that, that's very interesting. I, I have a sort of a side question related to that, in that while you while you had this experience and you were still working in the corporate uh, world, did you find mm-hmm. yourself experimenting with what happens in that environment if you? actually allow the uh, uh, words to drop down or to come from uh, a deeper place within yourself? Yes, I think um, there was two aspects to it. The first one is that it could clearly bring a deeper uh, connection with others, uh, a different level of listening uh, that could happen, uh, mm. listening to, to each other and being present, basically. Uh, but also it was triggering for some time for other people, you know, because it's almost like people want to stay in that heady space and that, you know, that unhealthy ego space, I would say, in some ways, 
where if you come with certain words sometimes you have to be very careful and not create allergies. And my teachers always say, no, don't use allergic words. Hmm. So I was starting to use some of that vocabulary, you know, some different definitions, like for example, my definition of happiness, you know, would have been very different 10 years ago than it is today. Uh, but if you talk to people sometimes that have not yet uh, along on that path, that have maybe not got through the transformation, people can hear really. You know, they don't really believe that it's not about money or about the corporate letters or it's not about, you know, you know, all those things. You know, how big is your title on your business card? And so uh, it was a process, I would say, to kind of build that vocabulary, which was basically building my inner container, you know, that was holding that vocabulary. And also, you know, the, the painful process of shedding all my belief system and my ego and all the things that I was and that keep me safe, or I mm. felt was keeping me safe. And it, it felt very unsafe, you know, to come out of that. It felt very like life and death, like I was dying to a process, but who was going to be born? And also a lot of my networks, a lot of my uh, friends, I would say, or connection at the time were people in that world. And I knew and I saw that a lot of that might be lost in the process. I had to change, find a new tribe, you know. My tribe was going to shift. Some people might be there, but a lot of them are not going to be along the way. And it was painful sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. to those people I've known for a very long time. So at this point then, uh, uh, there came the decision to completely walk away from that world. So tell us a little bit about that and and about the world that you walked into Yes, that was, and that was at the kind of a peak event of my career at the time. Um, I was nominated for uh, the Entrepreneur of the Year Award uh, for my company uh, that I, you know, uh, launched in New York uh, with um, Christophe, my my business partner at the time, and so we were nominated for that award, which is, it's a pretty big deal in the in the business world. And I was in Times Square, uh, this private event for uh, this award ceremony. And uh, there was, I don't know, a thousand people in the room and CEOs and big companies and entrepreneurs. And I, I had to go on stage, you know, to, to talk and to be present for the opening of the award. And, you know, we were nominated. So there was all four or five nominated people with me and that. And when I walk on stage at that moment, and I remember very clearly looking at the whole room, and everybody with big eyes open wanted to be us, wanted to be me, wanted to be on stage, wanted to be that person next year. And it was at a time where I was in profound inner suffering. My relationship was not well at all. You know, I was uh, mitigating myself. You know, there was a lot of things going on in my life. I was not healthy at all. And I saw the lie. The lie that I was, the walking line, the big smile, the nice ties, the nice suit. But the truth that I knew that I could not hide anymore about not believing in, in what I was going to talk about. And basically something just shattered. I, something shattered. Something happened that day. And I remember leaving that evening and spending the almost the whole night up thinking, I can't do this anymore. And very quickly, a few weeks later, decided that I had to leave all of that. I could not wait anymore to find out because I was trying to find out what is it, you know, what am I supposed to do? 
it's one thing to love nature, to love, you know, shamanic work, to love spirituality and religion, but what do I want to do? You know, what, what do I do with that? How do I sustain myself? I had all those questions, you know, and it was a leap of faith. I, it was big enough inside of me, that belief about that presence, but, you know, something bigger than me that I knew I could, I will be held. Something was going to carry me to that process. And that teacher that was going to carry me was inside myself, was, you know, beyond myself. It was something much bigger. And that was going to be something beautiful. But it went, it went to, you know, a lot of painting and fears. And it was not like just, okay, let's go, you know, let's take a leap of faith. But it was daunting in many ways. So um, you're at this uh, point of transition. And what it, what do you actually do in the world? Where do you take your body? Where do you, where do you move? What what happens next? So I decide to uh, basically quit everything. Uh, my company uh, it was a process because you know I was running a big company and there was a lot of money behind. So it took you know many months to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also my relationship, my apartment in New York, everything I had basically in my life, my car, just everything, just let go of everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember uh, packing a big backpack, putting all what I was bringing with me <laughs> on my bed, basically. There was like 40 or 50 things that I was going to bring with me uh, that I thought I would need on that journey. Uh, I remember taking a photo of it at the time and left with that backpack, basically, and took a one-way ticket to India, but not to go in an ashram or to go yeah, to see a teacher, but to go to volunteer at Mother Teresa in Kolkata. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was based on one of the teachers I was working with at a time where I was asking him, I said, you know, I really need a change. I want to go pray somewhere or meditate, and I want to go in an ashram for that. And he said, don't go in an ashram and, and uh, go taking care of the poor, the poorest of the poor. Go serve. Go do something that's not about you, and then you'll find yourself in that process. And he really struck me when he said that. Oh, yeah, it does not be about me. And so I, yeah, I thought about Mother Teresa somehow, and one of my friends walked there many years before, took a one-way ticket, get in Kolkata at um, the center, one of the center there at Mother Teresa, and just knocked at the door and say, here I am. And they asked me how long I was here for, and I said, I don't know, maybe one day, maybe one year, maybe more, uh, and started walking with dying people the day after in the street of Kolkata and in hospital. How did that touch your heart? Well, that completely shifted everything. Uh, because for once, I was not worried. Hmm. Uh, for once, I was not questioning anything. It was a very funny thing. I was so present uh, by taking care. So I was working with, um, in the first place, Mother Teresa opened when she started, uh, which which is the place where basically you pick up people that are dying in the street or about to die, and you bring them in and you wash them, and you give them food and you give them a nice bed so they can die with dignity and not mm-hmm. in the street. And I was taking care of those men, so because I was a man, so I was in the, the men's side of the of the hospital, and that's what I would do. I would start doing those things, um, and uh, I was so touched by those men by their presence. And I was almost like taking care of babies in some ways. 
you know, because this man didn't had anybody ever that took care of them. And I was the only reason they might stay alive, by feeding them, by taking care of them. You know, I didn't speak their language, but I have to be there for them. Hmm. So, um, I can understand how that would be, um, uh, uh, that would rip open some things that wouldn't ordinarily get touched. Um, what happened after that? Well, as I was there, um, and it's funny because, you know, I was in a, within a Hindu country. I was in India and I was surrounded by, you know, Hindu and Buddhist mainly. But I was in a Christian place, you know, Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one day, uh, so every morning and every evening before work and after work, I would go to the mass with all the sisters that run the centers. Mm-hmm. And I would be, it would be kind of my uh, anchor for the day, you know, it would give me strength for the day, just sitting there and listening to the sister on their knees, praying and singing for an hour. And I would go, you know, I would make the effort to just go there and spend an hour in my meditation and listening to the chants and all of that. And during that time, I think it was not a long time I was there, it was probably a week or two after I arrived, I had one of my first really profound, I would say, mystical experience of direct communication with God. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. I never really talked too much about it, I, you know, because it's kind of a very personal experience, but let's say I this conversation that went on for a few days. Uh, almost, you could say, like a voice in your head, but a very clear conversation. And it was with Christ, that was on that cross on the wall, mm-hmm. which was very weird to me because I didn't have any connection to it. I didn't have special connection to it uh, because I was not raised that way. But there was that discussion going on. And I was basically told, this is what you need to do. You need to... I was asking me, the first thing that was asking me was to resolve all the unresolved relationship pain that I was carrying with me. Until one of the first messages was, you need to reach out to that person that you hurt. And it was a person I haven't hurt for 10 years. I haven't been in touch for 10 years. It was, you know, much earlier in my life that this happened. And I remember coming out of that mass, being very shaken by it, but at the same time, not shaken, like like almost it was normal. And it was this very weird feeling. And opening my phone and having a message from my person, that person on my phone that I haven't heard from in years. And then I turn around and I looked at, you know, that man on that cross there, and I was like, what is going on? And I thought I was really going crazy. And uh, he just laughed. Just, that was, I mean, that's what I saw or felt or heard. He was just laughing. Um, and that was the beginning, basically, of things happening really deeply to me and starting touching me in depth. And then those voice went off a few days later, four or five days later. But a lot happened in that process. And that's when my faith dropped down. I was feeling it alive in my heart. Like I knew there was something beyond what I could see. There was a, a higher consciousness, something bigger um, that I could hold on to, and that could be my teacher, that could be my guide. And he related to me a lot to my plant medicine experience, where I could feel and hear that voice in nature, you know, through trees or plants or rivers or mountains. And so it was this familiar voice, uh, very ancient, very wise, almost like a grandmother or a grandfather. Uh, 
but I had wisdom that I didn't remember or didn't know. And I was so clear. It was so precise. I could not not listen, basically. So I started listening. And where did that uh, listening take you next? Did you stay in uh, Kolkata, or did you ultimately uh, journey elsewhere? Yeah, so I spent a few months in Kolkata, and then I, I spent a whole year abroad uh, in total. But in Kolkata, I spent only a few months, and then I started to do other volunteering missions, different parts of India, and also Sri Lanka, Nepal, uh, and the Philippines, and a few other countries. Uh, I ended up in Israel at the, at the end. That's where I finished my trip. Uh, so, And I was mixing two weeks to a month of volunteering with two weeks or three weeks of meditation, prayer, teaching practice with different sage masters, teachers, or around. So I went, you know, to, to Bodh Gaya and Varanasi in India. So some of, you know, the most sacred place in India. And I, was, I did the same thing in Nepal and Sri Lanka, but always with keeping making sure that I balance my time at least half of it for volunteering, mm-hmm. for being engaged, you know, in service. Uh, and I think that's what shifted the most my my whole work, obviously, because there was this spiritual experience going on in the background. There was this trying to hear that voice or to connect with that voice, to humble myself in some way so I could get out of the way uh, and connect to that deeper wisdom inside of me. And also making sure I don't stay in my head and I don't just sit there in meditation for a year, but I serve, that I help. And that kind of burst very different person because that was not much in who I was before. And and so out of that uh, experience of being on the road, um, at what point did you return to the U.S. and begin to offer more of this teaching and offer a practice to other people? Well, when I came back, first there was a question, do I come back? Do I come back to the U.S.? Do I stay here? Do I go somewhere else? Do I go back to France? You know, I was in the U.S. for 10 years at the time, uh, at that time already. Uh, and and uh, I started, you know, really praying and meditating about it and really it was what I was feeling is like, yeah, that's where you need it. That's, that's where you can serve. You know, that's, that's that's where you have connection and you know people and, and so I decided to come back but I still didn't know at all that I was going to do what I'm doing today and so I started diving deeper in the plant medicine work in the shamanic work in Reiki and a few other practice starting offering sound healing that I learned when I was in India um, Reiki because I trained as a Reiki master when I was in India too during that year so I started offering uh, some of those stations when I was back and diving deeper in the plant medicine world, uh, going to Peru, you know, once or twice a year, uh, going to Brazil. And that's what basically really opened the most. That's what started to really open and shifted my path in, in profound ways, you know, in the last six, seven years. So, so, well, I appreciate that. And it, it's a interesting journey. And I, I, would like to start to maybe talk a little more specifically about some of the the practices that you've you've described. In particular, mm-hmm. 
I mean, I'm interested in, 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 in what you describe about healing and the uh, uh, utilization of healing, that putting yourself in that position, engaged with other people instead of, uh, you know, completely engaged in some sort of interior practice you felt was a critical and as, if not, you know, as important, if not more important than the interior practices that you had been uh, introduced to. And so, I mean, well, mm, yeah, good. It, it, it's a very good question, and and I, it's always kind of a, you know it's a, it's a very dualistic. There's two type of answer really. You know, obviously it's needed. We we need that inner work, and there's no way we can do soul work going deep down, see what's going on without spending some time alone and some time in deep practices. But at the same time, I think especially for the Western mind and the way we've been educated. Uh, and all the shadows or layers or armors and traumas that's in the way, we can become self-centered a little bit mm-hmm. in this or lost in it. You know, it, self-centered, you know, w- would be, you know, sometimes a little bit bad when we hear that, but just lost in it, that we just spend so much time doing that that we really forgot why we're here, which is really not, it's not about us, really. <laughs> it's really about others. It's really about service. You know, others being, it could be the planet and nature. It can be also people or animals or, I mean, whatever calls you. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can get very attached to a practice and very tight to that practice. Plus, the practice, it really is only good for what you're going to do with it in real life with it. You know, true yoga is really the yoga of life. Once you're in a relationship with someone, Meditation is how you're going to react if you're triggered by someone that's telling you something that's triggering you. That's when your practice is useful. It, it, it's easy to not be triggered. You know, if you spend a year in meditation in ashram, I mean, it's easier. Let's say uh, it's a bit different once you have to be confronted with a partner that's difficult or your own parents. You know, whatever is going on in your life, that's really where you see how strong is your practice, and that's when you practice. You know, that's when you can practice your breathing, you know, your center, your being still staying connected, you know, staying in your heart and and still being engaged with people, you know, not pushing away, not running away and all of that. And so to me, I think that was key because that allowed me by kind of alternating these two different things to build a strong practice, but also to see its impact on my capacity to hold space, to hold people in their own trauma because I hold myself in my trauma, in my pain, you know, in my despair, in my hopelessness, you know. And uh, Shogram Chungpa talks a lot about that. And uh, and it was really triggering to me to to read that things were hopeless, you know, when I was reading teaching at some point. But I kind of understood that later on, understanding that, yeah, we, we have this amazing capacity as humans to hold opposite, to hold things sometimes we cannot reconcile to hold sometimes deep, deep pain and grief and also joy and gratitude to be alive when we wake up in the morning. And my life was always about extreme, one way or another, you know, fully on one side or fully on the other, or the other side. And that practice and really what nature is showing us in shamanic work is that capacity to hold opposite life and death in front of your eyes when you look carefully at nature at all times. It's joy and pain. You know, it's all of that is there. And that, for me, is being human. It's being able to be in that center by feeling, 
not by disengaging, not by bypassing. That's also the rest sometimes with deep practice. We can even bypass certain feelings, just being, you know, kind of checking out in meditation. Right. Uh, we just don't want the pain, you know, and we just meditate. So we come back from a hard at work. We just want not to feel. And, you know, some people take a glass of wine and some people meditate. Uh, you know, if you do it to numb the pain or bypass the pain, I don't know which one is better. I mean, probably meditation is better, you know, but at the end of the day, which one really, when are you going to do the deep healing work, which is to feel, to be able to hold that thing, to feel it, to be present with it. And and that takes time, to be honest, you know, it takes, yeah, it takes a lot of time to be able to do that. And falling again, you know, and I'm still on that path, you know, still falling and, and climbing again, you know, every time I fall. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Um, so um, this is this. Uh, your what you were just saying uh, reminds me of something I heard you. I, th- I thought I heard you say earlier um, in the show, which was sort of linking healing and liberation. That is the kind of liberation that, like uh, Buddhism, uh, might speak of. Um, and and so. Um, you just you just I think introduced trauma for the first time the the word trauma mm-hmm. into the conversation a few minutes ago, and yes. and I know um, from some of the emails we shared before this interview that that's a that that's a big area for you. But but if um, you're gonna if one speaks about trauma, um, the healing is is obviously related to that. But but before we get into the trauma. Specifically, I'm wondering if there's is there any other way that you would link these two, because I think this is this is an interesting area now. You know, in California, we see lots of teachers who who are speaking about healing and the importance of healing, uh, individual healing, collective healing, uh, yeah. planetary healing, etc. Um, and um, and they don't necessarily link that to um, the sort of some of the some of the classic um, descriptions of liberation from 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 you know Buddhists and other and other uh, uh, traditions. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about that linkage. Yes, I mean I'm not I'm not a Buddhist practitioner, so I cannot talk much about that. But you know I study a little bit and. But to me, very often, at least, you know, in the spiritual community, when people sometimes, you know, is it maybe not so deep yet in the past or not really a lot yet, liberation is almost like, you know, this nirvana. So it's that place almost of no suffering. Mm-hmm. But it's seen as a place of no suffering because basically I'm just in pure bliss. You know, there's no more, there's no more pain. There's none of that anymore. And that's, yes, that's good. How does it sit? space of liberation, I can just be present, you know, and be in that state. But for me, the truth as human beings, you know, however advanced we are with our practices and however type of practice we're doing, the path of liberation is a path of being able to feel everything and Mm -hmm. still be able to be emotionally engaged and connected with our heart which allows us to be emotionally engaged and connected with others. Which that, means that it doesn't mean, I, I don't use the, the word pain, or there's no more pain. No, it can be pain. You know, we can be very liberated and still experience a feeling of deep grief with something. But we're not taken by it. You know, we're not just the grief. We cannot fear, but I'm not becoming fear. 
I can have pain, but I'm not the pain. So I can allow myself, and that's why it becomes tricky, because I need to allow myself to expand my heart enough so I can feel everything, so I don't bypass. I don't avoid mm-hmm. experience, because if I avoid the pain, I'm going to avoid the so the, the high, you know, I'm going to be in that zone where I cannot really feel anymore, because my nervous system has been described now very well. Physiology, my nervous system, when it's engaged, can feel everything, but it's not a different system for the joy and the grief. You know, it's like one system that keeps me engaged or not with others. And if I do enough practice, I'm able, I realize that what happened over the years, that I'm able to sit with, like we talked about earlier, unknowingness, even like not knowing what tomorrow might bring. I might be able to sit with hopelessness, which is might seem very difficult to sit in peace with it. But which means that if I can really do that in my practice, I'm going to be able to hold that space with someone else, not through my words only, but through my presence, through an embodied nervous system and body that's basically resonating that vibration or that frequency or whatever we call it, a nervous system that is at peace you know, that the less anxious person in the room should be you if you do a good practice. We say always the less anxious, not no anxiety, you know. That's the healer in the room. That's the person that can hold that space. And we hold at that capacity, you know, it's not something that, you know, in a healer, I don't really like that term in any way, uh, that carries, but it's anyone that can hold that space for someone that has pain, that has trauma, that is going something difficult. It's not telling them, oh, reach out to bliss and you're just love and you're just life, because that's not going to help anyone there. You know, it's say no, it's say, how can we be with that and still see that we are much more than that? Hmm. Still see all of it. And how do we hold it together with others? How do we stay connected? You know, trauma is a very uh, system approach thing. You know, you cannot really resolve trauma as an individual, if you don't approach the system you are in, either being your family or very often your family or your friends or people that you are very connected to, because trauma moves around. That's the funny thing about trauma. But in shamanic work, in shamanic practices, that the way we it always look at trauma, you know, it's not seen as something you carry. It's more thing almost like uh, an entity or little person that can move around between different people. And the most sensitive person usually in the group is the one that is going to experience the most because they are the recipients of it. But if others are there and present and can hold that space, well, then people can heal faster than doing it on their own. Which tribes have done for eons. Yeah. You know, if they live in close community in tribes, that's why they have way less trauma when they can keep their way of life because they have a way when someone is going through trauma or difficult experience to heal that, very different than the way we're doing in the West, very different that we approach it. Yeah, and there's a couple things just in in what you've been talking about for the last few minutes I wanted to respond a little to in terms of our own background. And one is I really like the formulation that you put forward of the relationship between practice, as in like an interior practice, and the... um, what it's for and the analogy that you know comes to mind for me is uh, like learning a musical instrument where you do 
periods of practice, but that's different from actually spontaneously playing and performing in a situation that involves other people. And yes. and the way that you're describing that is is a, a good reminder that the aim of the practice is not just to become this dot somewhere, but to actually re-engage in life and be connected with people and to bring a certain kind of presence, as you described, to be able to hold a certain kind of space so that that can be a benefit and of a support for people as they continue to live their lives. So that's, that's yes, definitely one thing we appreciate. The other, the other um, uh, element of that that uh, I also just wanted to speak to is like our, in our own tradition, which has bears some resemblance to the uh, fourth way work of Gurdjieff. Our own teacher, mm-hmm. our own teacher, was very big on the uh, concern that you know interior practices imported from the west, from the east into a, a Western society, do have the have the risk of really uh, creating more isolation and more sort of uh, self-absorption mm-hmm. and. He de- he devised a number of practices uh, we call co-meditation, in which you're really systematically putting attention on other people, mm-hmm. and, and that the aim of that was that for a Westerner, um, you know, the shock is to actually put full attention on another. You know, it's easy for us because we're so self-absorbed to put our attention on ourselves. But for uh, you know the the transformative moment is like when you truly put attention on someone else. And take that attention off of your self-concern, like you were describing. That 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 is uh, profoundly revelatory, in a way that individual meditation, uh, not to diminish that, but individual meditation may not be a complete picture. So yeah, I fully, fully, fully resonate with what you just said. Love Gorchev, by the way. I studied a little bit and really love uh, his teachings. Uh, but to me, it's because we've learned, you know, I've, I've wrote recently about it, but we we learn so much the way of ownership, which is a way of separation. You know, what I have, what you don't have. I have a diploma. I come from this family. I own this. It's one of my bank account. This is the cars I have. This is the brand, this is whatever. In traditional system, it's not about ownership. Even the land, you don't own the land. You're in a relationship with it. It's all about relationship. And to me, it's how do we move the collective from a mindset, which is a mindset of ownership, to a mindset of relationship. Because either we want it or not, we are in relationship. We're in relationship with this earth, we're in relationship with each other, and we're only going to make it together or we're not going to make it. To me, it's plain simple. It's very obvious uh, when I look at the world and what's going on. So when we take this practice, very often it becomes ownership. Oh, I have this certificate. I went to this training. I've got this yoga certification. I've got this and that and this and that. The question is always to bring back, and that's probably one of the most important questions, is who is it for? When I'm doing a session or I'm doing a, a ceremony, or like, like, who is it for? You know, and if, if as therapists, if as people that help others and whatever however we define ourselves, we can always answer very clearly that question. Like we 100% we know, even if we give a massage, it's not for me. You know, and in the world of trauma, you know, I've trained in trauma a lot recently, and I'm doing a lot of work with sexual trauma, which is a dedicated um, 
in dedicated trauma is difficult because nervous system is very often shut down and that you need always to make sure that whatever you do is the person desire what people want mm. what people ask for and you're not putting on them a treatment you're not putting on them it's something that's co-created and i think that's what shifted a lot of the way so i look at healing 10 years ago five years six years ago seven years ago to the way i look at it now what to me now it's a co-creation yes i have tools that i've learned i can use singing bowls i can use a drum, I can use the, my, my voice, but at the end of the day is, you know, you are your own hitter, talking to the person that's there. You have the power. I'm not here to fix you. And the only way for that person to feel that is if they are co-creating the healing experience with you. So they find their own power within themselves, because if not, they become addicted to the hitter, to the guru, to the teacher, to the workshop, to the retreat, to the plant medicine, you know, to whatever works for them. And then we're going just to have a great experience. And we feel really good about it, and then we come back, and we don't have that effect anymore because it was something that's coming from outside inside of us, not something that's revealed from inside of us. And there's beautiful retreats and people that work that way, you know, more and more. But I think it's very always important to say, okay, is it something I'm going, you know, for... Am I in relationship here? Was it ready for? You know, and am I empowering you to find your own way through this darkness, through whatever you're going through? Or am I coming with solution and telling you this is what you have to do? Because if I do that, I'm just doing the same thing school system and education in the Western world I've done to people for now hundreds of years. Yeah, well, uh, we're at a point, a good point to uh, take a break for the show, so... So we'll get back to this, uh, this uh, discussion yeah. of, of shamanism and healing, the various healing techniques and the goals therein. So, um, but um, um, so we'll we do look a couple to more. Yeah, so we'll do a couple of announcements. I'm going to turn you over to uh, Rob on the phone. We'll be off, you'll be off the air, and uh, then we'll uh, rejoin in uh, probably about uh, six or seven minutes. Okay, great. Okay. See you soon. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called The Lute in Dance and Dream, masterpieces for lute from the 16th to 18th centuries performed by Lutz Kirchhoff on Renaissance and Baroque lutes. This piece is a prelude and chaconne by Charles Mouton. <laughs>
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we converse by telephone with Shawinigan Ungaya, a.k.a. Guillaume Gothero, founder and director of the Sanctuary Healing Center in the Catskill Mountains, where he offers various forms of healing modalities, including shamanic energy and sound healing, plus plant and herb therapies, as well as an awakened leadership course. So, Guillaume, uh, welcome back. And um, in the uh, we were just starting to get into, uh, toward the end of the last hour, the um, work, the considerable work that you're doing around shamanism. I'm wondering if you could start by just for our listeners who may not be as familiar or have different ideas about uh, the shamanic path and shamanic training, if you could just describe shamanism as you understand and practice it. Well, it's probably, you know, uh, one of the oldest uh, spiritual practices on the planet. You know, uh, some of the it's tribes. It's not the oldest. <laughs> yes, it's the oldest. Yeah, because you know, some of the, if you look at Aborigines in Australia, you know, some of their stories are, you know, this around forty, fifty thousand year old stories. Yeah. Um, you know, the Bushmen in Africa, or you know, or the Native American, uh, Native American, are a bit more recent in North America, for what we know for now. Uh, or South America in the. You know, some tribes have like, been here for ten, twenty thousand years, uh, and it's a it's a path or it's a spiritual, um, I would say, just way of living, way of being, that's directly connected to nature, uh, being because of the understanding that we are part of nature, we are nature. You know, we're just one of the species that is out there, and so we are ruled by the same mechanism that is a tree or a river, or a mountain. Uh, you know, the only difference is that we have this big frontal cortex that gives us a lot of thinking time, but also a lot of responsibility, you know, on how we are to be in the world. But it's a, it's a path of direct revelation, too. There is no uh, really teachers out there aside from nature and the plants teachers and, uh, you know, the different teachers that are out there. But there's not like a master or guru or even the word shamans you know it, it comes from really from russia it's not a, a word you would hear in south america or in north america we talk about medicine men medicine women um so it's people that carry medicine but we all you know in our way of talking we all carry our own medicine which is our own gift our own you know, it could be our voice it could be some other gift we have and that's our medicine and our medicine is here to heal the world it's medicine so it's here for healing others for healing, you know, our tribe, our collective, our families, our planet. And so it's beautiful because um, very often I meet people, you know, that are, you know, uh, Jewish or Christians or Buddhists, but they all, you know, still do work with tribes and do work with sometimes with plant medicine and all that, and it doesn't really interfere at all with their practice. In fact, you can support a lot their meditation practice, or you can support a lot their own self-reflection and their own self-healing and their own way of being in service in the world. So that's, that's beautiful because it's, it's, it has one of the most simple and complex at the same time and deep wisdom uh, that is carried by this planet you know, that we are living on. It's an interesting uh, 
question that you you kind of touched on this with people who come out of uh, Western traditions, uh, whether they're Western religious traditions, can partake of uh, shamanic practice and find find their uh, uh, gift, as you put it, uh, uh, that they can use to add healing to the world. Mm-hmm. And yet there's, but there's quite a contrast in the cultures in which shamanism has arisen or, uh, or, or uh, medicine traditions that are very uh, attuned to nature, to use a more general term, and the world that we're coming out of, which is in the modern Western capitalist culture. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious what challenges you see for uh, people from from modern contexts to actually enter into the world of nature in this way and regain that connection. Well, I think one of the I don't know if it's exactly your question, but I think if I understood correctly, for me, what I see a lot is that it could be misused too. You know, like any practice. You know, if you don't change your behavior or whatever you're doing, you can still spend, you know, 10 hours on your meditation pillow, your yoga mat, or whatever prayer practice you have. Or you see a jerk, you know, with your colleagues or <laughs> yeah. your friends or your partners, you know. Uh, I know people that have never done any of these practices, any of the spiritual practices, and are are beautiful people, are in service to the planet, are in service to others. And they don't really have... A, a core spiritual practice. They don't do yoga, they don't do meditation, they don't do any shamanic work, they don't do Reiki. Uh, but they're good people. <laughs> they're good human beings. They're in good relationship with each other, in good relationship with the earth. And so uh, I think that what I really see sometimes happening, you know, in the same way meditation can be taken out of its original foundation and aim uh, and brought back into maybe a corporation that's doing a lot of evil on the planet, or in a group of people that maybe are not very aligned. Yeah. Hopefully, we hope that this practice, because it brings you down into your heart, you know, ultimately are going to liberate you from those behaviors and all of that. But it can also be misused, you know, if the ego is in the way. And it can be used just as a way of dealing with the pain on a daily basis, but not really changing profoundly who we are and how we behave. And I can go back to my work, and because I meditate, I can maybe take more pressure. You know, I can maybe put more work hours on my work, but is this really what I'm being called to? Is it really what the planet needs, my community needs right now? That's always the question. Who is it for? You know? Well, so you're, you're kind of answering the question I asked because you're... Uh, if I drive part of the challenge of a Western a Western person getting involved in this kind of um, practice, is that there's a there's a danger of appropriation where um, getting getting back to ownership as you were talking yeah, about in the last hour. You know, it's like checking a box or yeah, I'm going to go on the ayahuasca retreat and uh, check that yeah. one off, and uh, uh, it becomes spiritual practice as entertainment. And and in in a way, or 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 ego agonizing. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, in a way, what I hear. Yeah, and I've seen, and, and I remember a retreat. There's this one retreat out there, and and I won't name it, but uh, you know, you have to be a member of that 
club and it's you know there's a high selection process on how you can enter that club which is basically based on your achievement as a corporate person <laughs> uh and it's a retreat where you know they fly you with private jets oh my god on beautiful island on the other side of the world oh, and where you do you know meditation and plant medicine and all that and you do uh there's some workshops and content there about social activism and all of that so if you look just at the skill, you will say, well, that's great. They do implant medicine, they do meditation, and they're talking about social activism and uh, social justice and all of that. But it's really white privilege. And yeah. also, it's totally misaligned. Uh, flying on private jets and all of that, it's not <laughs> being a good, a good human being on the planet today. The planet doesn't need more jet fuels, you know. And uh, it's really used as an ego-driven thing, you know, so even the whole selection process. To me so misaligned about who is there you know who are you bringing there and it's really staying in your own little world you know and keeping talking to the same people and feeling good about it you know by bringing all those things so there's always a risk there and either it's meditation you know all the plans if the intention is wrong you're not going to arrive in a, in a, in a good place in the right place you know it doesn't doesn't matter if you do ayahuasca or if you go on a meditation retreat or, you know, whatever it is, if your intention is for self-importance or for, like you say, check a box, I've done that, or yeah, I've done this and I've also done that, then it's clearly not answering the question, who is it for, in the right way. It's clearly not for others. So, you know? so we can put makeup on it and make it look good, you know, yeah. and think it's for others, but... In truth, you know, you very quickly you can see that it's it's really misaligned here. So, so how do you, as a teacher, uh, as someone who offers both training and uh, and offers a vehicle for introducing people into this work, how do you filter for that uh, kind of intent? And uh, you know, what um, skillful means, as it were, do you use to um, help people see that their t intent may not be what they think it is? Yes, I, I think first I, you know, I warn people about taking up that path, which is a path of death and rebirth in many ways. So are you ready to really see what is to see about yourself? Are you ready to let go if something is not aligned uh, with what maybe your higher purpose or your heart is telling you? Uh, and we might not always know. We might say yes, and in fact, we we are going to do no, or we might say, well, maybe I'm not ready, and in fact, maybe we are. So it's hard to know when we start on that. Uh, but I think it's mainly through the way uh, we transmit those teachings. You know, to me, the, the shamanic path, like I said, is a path of direct revelation. So by definition, it doesn't need a human teacher. I'm not needed for people to experience, you know, the wisdom of a river, a forest, or a plant. We are just, you know, facilitating, you know, holding a space with a certain energy and bringing people together so they can experience that revelation directly. But to me, it's always about asking about intention. I always spend a lot of time with people with me that want to do work about what is your intention here? What are you trying to achieve? And honestly, if someone calls me and says, well, I'm this big CEO, I work a lot with executives and and he tells me, well, you know, I'm running this big company, I'm working 100-hour a week, and, and this and that. 
and I want to meditate because I want to be able to open this other company and manage my marriage that's falling apart and all of that, and I want to keep it all together as it is and don't feel that anxiety anymore or sleep better. I want them that it's probably the wrong goal here. There's nothing wrong about wanting to feel less pain and sleep better and feel less anxiety. But, and we can put that on the paper as a goal, but what is going to really make you happy? And when we start diving, we realize very often that a lot of things have to change in the life that we are living. And the question is, are we ready to embark on that journey? Because it's really, you know, my teacher and the plant medicine world always told me when I started to walk with him, he said, you understand it's the path of no return what you're going to see, you won't be able to unsee. And it might be not comfortable sometimes, but there's no return. You won't be able to go back to that old life mm. because the suffering becomes bigger once you see the truth, once you see your own stuff, you know, when it's in the light, your own shadow, it's sometimes more painful than when you didn't really see them or grasp them fully. And so that path of shamanism really exploring depth that soul work, as we call it. So going deep dive inside, but also, you know, going up to transcendental experience, to experience of oneness and experience of, you know, God or whatever we call it. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, and you raise a, a point in, in what you just said that uh, I wanted to get to. And since we're in our second hour, I better do it now. Um, and we can come back to some of the other stuff as well. But it's this um, that you lead uh, uh, awakened um, uh, leadership course uh, or, or uh, offer awakened leadership courses. And so it, uh, you just mentioned something along those lines. And I, I'm wondering if you can expand on what you what you mean by that how that how that um the the folks who 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 are attracted to that and and how they might learn to clarify intention in particular yes i mean it it, it's interesting because uh there's a lot of business and a lot of study now um financial studies that shows that companies that do good in general and that treat their people better, and either being their clients or their employees, usually perform better in times of crisis, like mm-hmm. market stock crisis and all of that. And there's a lot of study about that because the, the clients are more loyal, the employees are more loyal because they believe in something bigger than just their paycheck, you know, than just the product they are selling. They believe that they're doing something good. And innately, we all have in our goodness, wherever we are, Whatever loss we are, whatever we're doing, we have inner goodness. We we definitely hold that inside of us. And everything we do, if it's aligned with that, we're going to feel quite good about ourselves. And if it's not, we're going to suffer. Any other ways that is far away from that inner goodness is going to make us suffer in some form or shapes. So the Wiccan Leadership Program, my idea was and is, you know, that once we align with our inner goodness, which is aligning with our heart, and where is a deeper desire as a human being, which can take some time to discover and, and, and find out because most people don't always know, once we act from there, when we speak from there, when we take every step we take in our life is from there, there is a joy, a happiness, a fulfillment, a sense of meaning in life that appears that cannot appear if we're not in connection with that. 
And so that leadership that's from the heart, you know, is much more powerful because of that than leadership that's just from the head or from the ego. That's based on competition. That's based on ownership. And it's hard for traditional corporate models. I mean, now there's new corporate models like B Corp or other, you know, models. But it's hard for traditional models to believe that competition and kind of killing your enemy, which is your competitors, and, you know, making more profit, you know, and paying people less sometime and making, you know, even having more of this money is not good for the company. And especially when company are held by shareholders, you know, or by, you know, investors. When people, very often people that come to me are more people that run their own business and own it. So they have more latitude to change things. And very often it's because they had a, some kind of big breakdown personally or in their life and they want to change really the way they, they do things in general, and their business is one of them. Uh, so I think the corporate world, you know, today is changing also because even the people in the stock market, the investors, and the board that runs the company realize that when they don't do that, there's huge risk for the company because one day the consumer might realize that, oh, I don't want to buy these products anymore because the CEO is a jerk or because the product is done by slaves on another country, really, or by child, or whatever it is. Uh, and so that, you know, thanks to, I guess, you know, social media and the general, you know, awareness that we have of things much more quickly than before, it's hard to heighten what's going on today. And big companies, you know, it's known now when something like that happens, can really literally overnight lose a lot of their value uh, because, one, a few customers decide to take a campaign online and say, well, the product was done. Here's a picture of the factory. Um, so I don't know if always people shift for the right reason, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, there's definitely a movement in that we cannot stop, you know, uh, towards that because that, that, that's who we are. At the end of the day, you know, that, that's where we're aiming. I don't know if it's in 10 years or in a 1,000 years, but that's where the place, the place of equilibrium between each other and with our environment is going to be. If we don't do that, we're on a closed system. We're going to run out of resources uh, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's interesting that the corporate world and the uh, existence of corporations uh, seem like another form of life, you know, another, another org, you know, self-organizing system that, includes uh people and materials and things like that and the early stages of that is a it's still a very primitive kind of life mm-hmm. and, totally. the, and the uh, interesting opportunity as you describe is if 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 somehow the people engaged in the that world uh can bring a higher purpose and the um covenant under which that corporation exists, and you mentioned a couple of modern variations from the standard corporation can actually become more commonplace. It might be possible for this uh, uh, this odd form of life to evolve and uh, effect to good purposes things changes that are needed in this planet yeah and and to and to do it for the right reason you know i mean the what's called corporate social responsibility, CSR programs, you know, were born like, I don't know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and they, they work for a little while, 
uh, and company were doing that mainly to kind of you know rub a little bit the back of the customer to say hey, we are doing good look we have a foundation and we're opening some orphanage or we're doing this we're recycling and all of that but if the core of your mission is misaligned you know and you have the whole CSR program that's not going to work end of the day you know it's just the way it is because at some point you know your employees are going to realize it which means your customer are going to know about it at some point and you are at risk so you need really to reflect on that. And yes, if you're a CEO and you're only here for three years and you'll pay you know, a lot of money every year, you might not care because you might just be here for a few years and take as much money as you want in that process. Right. But you might care because you have children and you realize, wow, you know, I, I need to care. Important. Got it. Well, we, I want to... Um I want to touch on as many uh, points as I can uh, while I still we've still got you here uh, today. So um, I wanted to invite you to speak about trauma. That's one of the things we, you touched on briefly in the first hour. And um, and in one of the emails you shared with us, you, you talked specifically about emotional, physical, and sexual trauma. So so how does the the work you do, the shamanic, etc these modalities that you use, how, does, how, do you, how are you able to help people, presumably help to heal their own uh, uh, traumas that they're carrying with them? Mm. Well, the, you know, tra- trauma is something that we hold as a, as a collective, uh, you know, as countries sometimes. Mm, that's for sure uh, as, today. As, as collective, you know, sometimes as religion, sometimes as groups, as families, as communities, as gender. Right. So there's many, many layers to it, and it's quite complex things, but there's nobody that's really immune to it. And it doesn't have to be uh, something that has been dramatic, um, like being sexually abused and or something really big that you remember, but, you know, repeated small emotional trauma every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in your childhood, uh, it's been proven now to create massive damage on you know brain developments and capacity to have empathy and capacity to connect to others and capacity to be in proper relationship with others as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the statistics, uh, especially in the U.S., are quite dramatic. Uh, you know, uh, 75% of children in the U.S. Uh, carry some form of trauma uh, today. Uh, young children. Um, you know, and when we look at, you know, that trauma, you know, very often it's emotional, but, you know, in 30% of the cases it's physical and very often also it's sexual. And so the reality of it is that uh, when we carry trauma in our body, because that's where trauma is located in our nervous system, in our tissues, um, when we carry that trauma, uh the body is amazingly well designed because it's evolved for millions of years and the body is capable of hiding it and not making us feel it. So we can function. You know, it's a, it's a good system. It's, it's designed so even if we go through something atrocious, somehow we don't always throw ourselves by the window. You know, that can happen, but very often we just survive the trauma. We might be kind of functioning, you know, I mean, a seemingly normal life. But in fact, many things in our behaviors are not normal behaviors, they are trauma behaviors. You know, incapacity to have deep emotional intimacy with people, incapacity to feel empathy, uh, many things like that. So our capacity to connect basically to the world is very limited because our nervous system is in 
uh, response place where it cannot connect. It's not open. And it has to do with the vagus nerve. And, you know, we're not going to detail that, but there's a lot of study now on, on what happened in our nervous system. Uh, when we approach trauma with shamanism, uh, it's a very different way than the traditional um, psychotherapy or uh, or trauma work that's out there, but it's very similar, just with different vocabulary and tools. But the way when we work with plant medicine, for example, with trauma, is that we rely on the belief that you have inner goodness and inner wisdom. And we rely you know, on the belief and the proven belief and the proven reality that nature, because it's the oldest teacher, you know, it's a billion-year-old, multiple billion-year-old teacher, if you take the earth, has learned and seen so much that it carries wisdom that we can connect to as being part of nature, as human beings. And so when we bring people into those experiences or we ask people to experience some shamanic work that have to be with plants, we rely and we trust that the capacity of your body and the capacity of nature brought together to a certain set of practices and rituals can bring healing because it's been proven for tens of thousands of years. Those methods, you know, are, have evolved. You know, it's not like they are old and just uh, folkloric methods. They have evolved and been refined and refined and refined. And so the way the medicine people works today is based on a lineage sometime of thousands of years of so many teachers. And so they've proven to work. And I've seen them, to come back to trauma, working amazingly well with people with trauma. Sometimes people carrying things that they have not been able to get rid of through traditional methods or very often just medication, which very rarely uh, heal the trauma. It can, you know, help cope with it. It can get us to go through a, ba- a bit of bad moments, but it doesn't really heal it. It can allow the body to finally reopen and about, uh, allow the nervous system to re-engage and can help people to be relating with themselves and others in a, such a different way. Sometimes 30 years after trauma happened, after just you know a few nights or a few days of work, just because the body knows how to heal. You know, that's how cancer heals in some people. That's how some people get out of depression. It's not that they are smarter. It means they just connected that wisdom in their body. So that's what we access in shamanic war. We're accessing the deepest nature of the being of each other. And we trust and we know because we know that it's present in the core of your being. It's in your DNA, it's in your bones, it's in your breath. There is the wisdom. We just need to be able to reconnect to it and to be you know, supported or guided into it. But really, it's you or your own healer in that process. Anyway, you just have support. You mentioned earlier the, the idea of the co-creation, and yeah. um, it's certainly been our experience when we've 